Hello, hello, fellow therapists. Welcome back to Holding Space for Therapists, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy Freitas, and I'm so excited to be back sharing episodes. I took a little break between the last episode and this one, but I have some really amazing topics coming your way, launching on Mondays, topics related to things like time management when you're in private practice, building a solid referral network, hiring a virtual assistant and getting help when you're in private practice. And I'm really excited to get a chance to share more about today's episode with all of you. This episode is sponsored by Modern Therapist Academy. This is my private practice e-course for modern therapists who are interested in building, starting, growing, or scaling their private practice. This course launches and opens for enrollment on March 25th, 2020, along with my new course, Podcasting for Therapists. So if you have ever dreamed of starting a podcast, then definitely mark your calendar for March 25th. I'll be opening enrollment for about 10 days where you can sign up and register for either of these courses. And there will also be a bundle option if you're interested in both. All right, in today's episode, I sit down with Nerissa Harris. Nerissa is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's also a writer and a cultural consultant. I first met Nerissa when she sent me a DM. She sent me a DM and she said, Hey Cassidy, I love your content, especially the content related to postpartum and mental health, but I do feel like the images that you use in your content aren't always so inclusive and don't always represent the people that I'd want to be sharing your content with. I took a look at my feed and I realized she was right. I could be doing so much better when it comes to, or when it came to cultural sensitivity and inclusion in even on my online marketing and on my website and on my social media feed and in the content that I was sharing. We started to connect through DM, sending some voice messages back and forth to each other. I got a chance to learn more about her work and decided to hire her to come on to this podcast to share her work and her knowledge with not only me, but with you through this podcast. I'm really excited to get a chance to share Narissa and her work and her story with all of you where we explore things like microaggressions in the workplace in our field and ways that we can be showing up in our therapeutic relationships and in our therapeutic work with cultural sensitivity and humility. All right, are you ready for this episode? Let's get to it. You're listening to Holding Space for Therapists, a podcast for modern therapists. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy, and I'm passionate about supporting therapists and building profitable, sustainable, and meaningful private practices. Are you ready to build or grow your modern private practice? Let's dive in. Hello, Narissa. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to get a chance to connect with you here. We connected over Instagram and sent each other a few voice texts back and forth. And so I'm just really grateful that we were able to find a time for us to record a conversation and share it with other therapists. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know that you are um, postpartum right now. So I really, I really understand and appreciate. Um, you taking the time and setting aside time to do this with me. Thank you. 
Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I first found your work on social media, and we started talking through DMs about diversity inclusion, particularly in our field. And specifically, we were talking about like diversity inclusion, even in like the images that are used on social media. And I just really appreciated and valued your feedback and um, wanted to uh, hire you to come onto the podcast <laughs> to not just, you know, bring that awareness in education to to me, but to others, because I do truly believe it's so critical and so important. So I wonder if you could first share with us a little bit of your context around where like where you became passionate about all about this, um, your background, and just a little bit about you. Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, so I'm Narissa Harris. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, and a bit about my background, because I like to do background first, and then kind of it ties into where I became so passionate about cultural awareness. Um, So I've been doing this work as far as kind of helping people and, you know, I guess we can say being a healer, so to speak, and helping people with problems for about 13 years. Um, I've been a licensed therapist um, with the Board of Behavioral Sciences for five years and been in private practice about the same amount of time. A couple of months after I got licensed, um, I started my private practice um, really small. And then I decided to kind of quit my day job, so to speak, and just began working for myself and building my own brand, which was centered around culture. Um, I just was feeling as though things were not as culturally inclusive as I wanted them to be where I was working. And so I kind of, you know, was like the second agency that I had worked at, you know, experiencing some microaggressions and things like that. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to just work for myself. Um, And so the passion has always been there, ironically, because I think about this question a lot. Um, It's always been there with me being culturally aware, you know, being a black woman, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, For those of you who might be familiar with California, I'm from uh, East Oakland, which is very, well, it used to be urban. It's with gentrification, it's starting to change. But when I grew up, it was a very urban area. And I remember going to college. Um, I didn't have a car, so I was really low socioeconomic status. And so I would take public transportation and just really feel like I felt so different um, coming from home, going to school. And I just wasn't sure what was happening. Um, and I remember my mom making a comment and kind of saying, you're going kind of from the hood to this professional, so to speak, educational setting. And then you have to come back through the hood and kind of wear this face. Mm-hmm. And so in graduate school, I learned I was cold switching, which is like a very popular term, you know, yeah. when you in the field of mental, mental health. Um, and cultural awareness. And so that's where it started to slowly kind of trickle into the professional realm of being more curious about culture. When I started learning about code switching, um, I would say really about 13 years ago in 2006. And um, then I started dabbling more with my thesis. And so I wrote about preventing suicide in African-American males 
between the age of 15 and 18. Because in our culture, we, we aren't really high on the suicide rate, but back then the number was starting to rise. And so I found it interesting um, yeah. to see what was going on. And then the passion just got really over the top about seven years ago when I discovered Dr. Joy DeGroy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Um, I I've actually, um, I've, I had her once. We did an Instagram live together once. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I love her work. Yes. <laughs> and so that is when the passion just got over the top. And I was already in this phase of my life um, where I just, I remember kind of going to the interview at the agency that I decided to leave. But um, prior to, you know, stuff getting weird, I remember going to that interview and really feeling like my Black authentic self. And so I was already in a point of my life where I just kind of didn't care. I'm a natural Um, So I don't have like any perm or anything in my hair. I just am very fluffy and Afro and curly and whatever I choose to do that day. And so when I saw Dr. Joy, I was already in this phase in my life where I just was fully, fully embracing my blackness and being okay with that. Mm -hmm. And I never had seen anyone command a crowd in such a way, but be so real about what the Black community has gone through. And so it just inspired me. I did a lot of work at the agency to facilitate conversation, um, to keep the conversation going. Um, I did surveys. You know, I just started doing a whole lot of stuff. Um, And then I wanted to continue that on my own when I left the agency. And that's when I, like a year later, started my newsletter. Um, so I write a monthly newsletter about cultural awareness, and it's mostly centered around the Black community. And so I've been, you know, raw and unapologetic since then. So that's that's me. <laughs> well, okay. um, I love Dr. Joy's work, and it sounds like for you to to. I mean, I think this kind of comes to like seeing the representation, right? Like to see her mm-hmm. as a Black woman. Like in 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 owning her identity and in speaking in the way that she did and commanding the crowd like she did, it sounds like it really did give you permission to say, you know what, like this is something that absolutely I can be doing too, and that I'm passionate yeah. about doing, and I'm going to step into it and I'm going to own it. Yes, very much so, and it it has you know it really has worked well for me in my favor. Sometimes I you know, in the beginning of this journey. And even sometimes now I get a little nervous because I'm, I'm real raw and unapologetic when it comes to just cultural awareness. And mm-hmm. that's not always received well, um, but I have to be who I am, you know, my authentic self. It has been received, you know, really well. And so you're right. She, I, I had some permission to see that this is something that could be done and that is valued by people um, in society. So yeah. Right. And I mean, I think that even that like permission is something that we're talking about here, right? Like, of course you should have permission. Like you should be, you, of, we, you, of course you should have permission to do that. But I think that that speaks to um, the experience of privilege and the experience mm-hmm. of oppression, right? That like, 
I, as a white woman, there may be some ways in which in my own identity as a woman, in which I may not feel necessarily that like automatic permission to like own a space. But as a white woman, there's absolutely privilege in that, right? That sometimes I can be blind to of like, wow, I feel like I can step into this and own and and like command that space. But am I fully aware of like what unearned privileges I have that allows me to do that, you know, and I yes. think that that's constant work that I have to be doing. Uh-huh. As a mm-hmm. um, so I, I would love to. So you you mentioned the experience of having microaggressions in the workplace, and I know that we have. There's a lot that I want to talk to you about, but with you bringing that up, I do. I would love to hold some space for you sharing a little bit about those experiences and mm-hmm. just kind of bringing awareness to how those things can show up. You know, even in our field, that mm-hmm. oftentimes you know you would hope these aren't happening, but they're happening everywhere, every single yes. day, all the time. People are. A lot of folks who are, you know, the, the, the ones who are, you know, having these microaggressions or like being the perpetrators of these are not even aware right. they're doing them. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about that. And maybe my hope is that everybody under- knows what a microaggression is, but maybe let's actually just start there with sort yeah. of what that is. Microaggressions, um, and like I said, I'm really layman's terms, so I try to put stuff in really basic stuff and use examples for people. Yeah. Um, microaggressions are, I kind of feel like they're just that. They're these micro forms of aggressive behavior that um, is racially based or racially charged, so to speak. And so it could be things when someone... Um, runs into a, a black person. I, of, I often use black people because I'm black, but this yeah. can go for anybody of color. Um, you know, oh, she's very well-spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even saying she's very well-spoken for a black girl, but just the fact of referencing an African-American being well-spoken mm-hmm. um, can be considered a microaggression. Um, or she's very well put together, um, again, it's kind of like, why would you assume anything different? Right. Um, because I am black. So that's a form of being aggressive. Um, within the agency um, that I worked with, they were very, very subtle. And so it wasn't because I kind of feel like the example I just gave is not necessarily subtle, right. but it can be subtle for someone who doesn't know any better, right? Yeah. Um, but at the workplace, it was really subtle. So with my first um, job, they there were things, um, I was a just a regular clinician, and they, there was a position that came available to be a lead clinician. And the criteria included working there for a certain amount of time, um, having high productivity. Um, and for those who aren't aware of the productivity, it's just kind of how many clients you're seeing based off of a percentage and you're meeting that percentage every month based off of what the agency wants. Um, so that was one of the requirements. And another requirement was to be able to um, kind of train upcoming clinicians And so I didn't have the productivity piece, but I had trained a clinician that came under me and I had worked at the agency um, over the time that they had required. And so this clinician that came under me, I literally set her up. Her office was next to mine. I got her acclimated to the school that we worked with and the referral process. She'd often come in and ask me questions. She'd ask me questions about how to do her notes. 
um, or the type of language to use. Um, she was just really brand new to the field. Um, and I helped her with that. And so I took a risk and decided like, Hey, you know, I might not have the productivity all the time. I hit it some months, some months I don't, but let me try and apply for this position. Yeah. And I yeah. get the position, which I expected because I didn't meet all three criteria. However, there was a white woman who applied and she had not been working there for the time frame required. And so they gave her the position mm-hmm. and it was a big uproar with the agency because people were like, well, wait a minute, like Narissa applied for this position and, you know, and they were like, well, you didn't, she didn't meet the criteria. And then everyone was like, well, this other girl didn't meet the criteria. Right. And it's yeah. this awful situation for the woman who applied because all she was doing was trying to better herself and apply right. the same thing I did. And now it almost turned into her becoming the enemy. And mm-hmm. so we had to really, as clinicians, work hard to focus on upper management because it wasn't her fault. This was an upper management, um, like hierarchical, if, if I'm saying, I get, always mix that word up, but <laughs> hierarchy, hierarchy yes. issue. You know? um, and so this had nothing to do with the clinician that applied. Yeah. And so that was the, my first experience of real in your face like, oh, there's like some cultural stuff happening at this job. Um, and it was ironic. It was the, during the time that Obama became president. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just like all this stuff that was just happening um, with at an agency who, you know, quote unquote, prided themselves on doing cultural awareness trainings every month. Right. But then this happened. Yeah. So, you know, I left that agency and just kind of was like, never mind. And I went to the other agency and I, you know, I stay at jobs for a pretty long time. So that's why I only have two agencies under my belt. Um, But the same thing kind of started happening after a couple of years at the other agency, but in a different way. So it was a, I often say I felt like, you know, wolves in sheep clothing. Mm. Um, because after I, I pushed to get Dr. Joy to come to our agency and help train us, um, because again, at these points in society, this is when a lot of um, unnecessary killings of, of Black men were starting to take place. Um, the Oscar Grant thing had happened. Um, Trayvon Martin had just happened. And so we were community-based. And a lot of the clinicians were white, going in homes, working with black boys. And so my big thing was we can't ignore this when going into these homes. Um, And so people were supposedly interested in talking about this until it got really deep. And then I noticed it tapering off. Like there was no more space to have these conversations. There was no more quote unquote time. Um, people stopped being as engaged, you know, so that was kind of like the first sign of really tiny, I wouldn't necessarily call that a microaggression. I would just call that more avoiding digging deep. Um, but I had microaggressions and supervision when I would feel stressed out, um, cause I was community based. And so I had to drive everywhere and I remember my supervisor making a comment like, well, maybe this isn't the work for you. And so that was kind of, that kind of hit hard because it's like, no, I'm meant to be a therapist. 
But I think anyone driving an hour and a half in one direction to then see a client and sit with them in their traumatic response and then drive back yeah. <laughs> through traffic. You oh, know, I you're think human. Yeah. You're human. But what I'm hearing is like the the standards, right? It's sort of like yeah. in, in the job that you applied for and in the supervision experience, sort of the expectation and standards seem to be different based mm-hmm. on the color of your skin. And the people yeah. folks who are, you know, when when somebody is like, okay, the minute this work starts to get really deep, they they mm-hmm. avoid or tune out. I mean, that there's privilege in that, right? Like yeah. that's like when I look in the mirror, I see a woman. I don't see I don't see my whiteness, right? But but that yeah. is because like because of the world in which I live in, like my the color of my skin, there's inherent privilege in that. And so I don't have to like constantly be considering the fact that I am white, right? And it's like exactly. that having to go do that deep work and getting the like having the option to avoid it. That's privilege, mm-hmm. right? And, oh, yes. and I think that absolutely that, you know, that's, you, you said, you know, maybe not a, mic- a microaggression, but like that's, that's privilege. Like that's like an unwillingness yeah. to do the work, which is going to that thus lead to, uh, you know, continuation of those aggressions in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely, mm-hmm. which it ultimately did. It led to a continuation, which is yeah. why it was like, okay, I think. I am done with agency work and I'm going to just take agency over my work. Mm, (laughs) I just decided to just do my own thing and I've never been happier. So, well, Nursa, thank you so much for, for going. I know that we didn't plan, plan necessarily to talk specifically about all of this, but I'm so glad that we did because I, um, I just know that there are going to be listeners here, Nursa, who can, relate to some of your experiences. And I know that sometimes in the experience of having something feel like a microaggression, part of like one of the factors of it is it can be the micro component of it can make us wonder like, huh, like it can make us question, like, are we just, am I just being too sensitive? Am I just like, you know, and so then you question yourself and then that does, that leads to, you know, it not getting addressed or to, or to not feel like you're in a position where you can address it or name it, right? Like that is part of what can keep the, you know, voices silenced in these experiences. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just, I'm grateful for you in sharing this because, hey, maybe there's somebody out there, even just one person who's hearing this and can say, wow, like that's, I've experienced things like that as well. And I didn't maybe have a name for it. Or maybe I was wondering if it really was, if it was just in my head, right? But like you yeah. are, um, you're giving voice to this. And I, my, my hope is that, you know, when, if somebody's hearing this, they can, they can feel like they can name their experience. Right, right. Yes. So- you know, I wanted to talk a little bit more with you about um, our field and mm-hmm. ways in which mental health providers can begin to attune to cultural diversity and inclusion in their practices and in their marketing. And I think mm-hmm. I want to start with their practices, right? Because, hey, like, yes, marketing is important. Mm-hmm. Having that visual representation is important. But like, if somebody is just using visual representation or like marketing as if they are, um, you know, culturally aware or, um, you know, then, but not actually doing the work, then that's actually, right. actually going to be 
quite harmful to the clients that are walking in their doors. And so what what are the ways in which you believe that mental health providers can begin to attune to that diversity inclusion first in their practice, but then also in their marketing? Great. Um, I'm so glad you asked this question too, because um, I I often kind of do a training on this. Yeah. And so there's some steps that I like to give people that are in private practice um, that help them, like you're saying, attune to, to the client and their experience. And so um, again, I, I use black clients as an example, but this really goes with any client of color. Um, and so I feel like the very first thing that is really important to attune to your clients of color is to build a relationship with them, not rapport. So a lot of times we've been taught in school, like, you know, therapeutic rapport, build rapport, you know, that's kind of like the, the token word for our, our field. And I feel like a relationship goes such a much a much longer way than rapport. If you kind of break down what rapport means, it's like an agreement. You know, it's like a mutual agreement. It's a mutual understanding um, on how to kind of communicate. Yeah. And yes, there's an agreement in therapy, but for the rapport to be like an agreement and mutual understanding doesn't feel authentic. Whereas a relationship is just a way of being and a way of connecting and interacting with someone. And you can still have a relationship and have therapeutic boundaries, but relationships are authentic. They're both ways. Um, it involves a little bit of self-disclosure. You don't have to tell your client your address or, you know, what you're doing on a Friday night. But I really believe if you have someone coming in your office for 45 to 50 minutes and you're asking them questions about their trauma or their history, and if they ask you, hey, are you married or do you have kids or how was your Christmas? And you want to deflect, you know, and not really answer the question and loop it back to them. That's not necessarily a therapeutic relationship. Um, and so my big, my big, big thing is to build a relationship. And then digging a little more deeper to really start getting into the culture is um, that you have to realize that culture is in the room. Um, I know sometimes people think it's like politically correct to, you know, say things like, I don't see culture and I see, I mean, I don't see color and I see everyone as equal or um, I see everyone the same, but that's actually harmful. Yeah. Um, because people of color, we see our color every day and so does society and they remind us of it. And so to pretend like you don't see your client's culture is not a good idea. Um, so it's really important to acknowledge it. Um, the times where I've been in therapy, um, the best therapists I've actually had <laughs> have been white and the reason that they've been so good is because they have sat with my experience as a black woman and actually initiated the conversation, especially when I was going through these microaggressions at work and transitioning. I remember one therapist saying, hey, how is it for you to be talking about this with me as me being a white woman with the privilege I hold? And that made a world of difference and it established even a deeper level of trust for me. Um, because I felt like I could really bring my blackness into the room. Mm. 
So I, I really encourage um, clinicians to, um, to acknowledge that there is color in the room and if there's a color difference. And on the flip side, if you are the same color as your client, to not assume, right? So don't assume that their experience as a Black woman is the same as my experience as a Black woman. Because I, I realize now with the clients I work with, I do hold some privilege. You know, I'm no longer in the lower socioeconomic status, even though I can really relate to what that is like and how that was when I had to endure things like being on food stamps or Section 8. But I'm not in that situation anymore. Um, and I have a little bit more free reign. And so I really like to keep that in mind, um, that my experience, just because I used to experience, doesn't mean it's the same as a client that's actually experiencing it now. Yeah. And so I have to assume um, and make assumptions. And then I think the last thing is to just really pay attention to how you are helping your client, so to speak, um, and just making you know, paying attention to the fact that are you really um, being client centered? I just wrote about this. Um, you know, there's a difference between being client centered and really focused on what the client needs, as opposed to kind of saying you're client centered, but you have your therapeutic agenda as to where you think the client should be. And so really just meeting your client where they are, and being mindful of not helping in an overstepping way or like a, a savior type of way, because that can be expensive. So inviting your client to share how they need help, what they need help with, and helping in that way. Um, and eventually throwing on some therapeutic tools, but really using the tools that you use to the advantage that the client says that they need, not what you see them needing. Okay. I love so many of these key pieces, these pieces that you're naming here. And so if I could kind of go back and identify what I'm hearing and, and, and I want to check in to make sure I'm hearing, hearing you and your intent and all of this correctly. So there's, there's the piece about building the relationship and sort of um, relationship over this, over what we, typically think of in terms of rapport or how rapport could be interpreted, right? And so what I'm hearing in the relational piece for you is it's really about letting the client, like really being very curious about the, the client's experience and letting the client be the expert of their own lives, right? And there's, there's uh -huh. like this, um, I'm not sure, I, I've heard it described as, you know, cultural, being able to practice cultural humility as a clinician rather than cultural competence, because I think that yes. taking a course in a class about, you know, diversity um, or, um, you know, a, a, a black woman's experience, like, okay, okay mm -hmm. great. But um, mm -hmm. if you are going to then think that, oh, now I am culturally competent, or even I love your example, your personal example of like being, of owning your own privilege based on your you know socioeconomic status and being able to be, say I can relate to the experience of being on food stamps in Section Eight, um, but I am not going to assume that I know what this person's mm -hmm. experience is. And so in that space, you are leveling you're leveling power. So you're giving power and agency back into your clients. Hands and letting them be the expert of their own expert of their own lives, but also not ignoring power in the room. 
And Mm -hmm. in that space, bringing in humility where you can then allow the client and not assuming competence about something and allowing the client to have that agency. Um, Yeah. Okay. That's what I'm hearing. That's a really big thing. And if I could jump in so I don't forget, um, in, in the line of having agency, one thing I often do with my clients is I'll, I challenge my clients, but I warn them. And I'll always say, was that too much? Or am I, am I pushing too hard? And they'll say no. And I'm like, are you sure? And if I can pick up on their face, I'll keep saying like, are you sure? Like, this is your therapy. Let me know. And then sometimes, you know, they might say, well, that's not quite what I'm saying, or that's not what I meant. And then that gives them a sense of empowerment, especially for my clients who don't advocate for themselves, that if they can do it with me in the room, then they can do it out there in the world. And so I'll praise them. And I'm like, thank you. Like, this is your therapy. I appreciate you letting me know that's not what you meant. And then, you know, they can move on in the next session and kind of feel more confident with saying, well, no, Narissa, this is, that actually doesn't feel good or that doesn't feel like what I'm saying or what I need. This is what I need. And so checking in with your clients um, helps too with the agency as well as the the cultural awareness too, because some cultures, you know, need permission to kind of, speak up or say certain things, especially if they feel like it's someone that has quote unquote authority. And so that's why I really try to not make my sessions feel as though I'm the expert. Like you're saying, they're the expert of their own life. So you are, I mean, what I hear in that is you are, you're, you're really doing the work of paying very close attention to even just the nuance, right? The nuance of communication. So if a client says to you, yeah, no, that's, that's sort that's kind of it. It's like, no, you're, you're paying attention to their face. You're paying attention to body language and you are continuing to be curious and holding space to give them permission to share that like, Hey, if I got this wrong, like that's, that's like, I want to know, I want to know if I'm, if I'm not understanding, if maybe how I understand that word is different from how you understand this word, because that, this is, this is your work. This is about your experience, Uh right? Um, And, and there's, there's humility in that, right? Like, because I know, I know for myself, and I love that you shared the example of your white therapist and what she said that like really allowed you to build Mm -hmm. that trust and do like really great work with her is that when I've had my experience, when I've had experiences with my clients where I've gotten something wrong, like based on their, um, their cultural experience. And when I got it wrong and when, when they, when they're able to name that and like I'm able to like hold space and like, you know, get put my ego in check of like, you know, feeling like I, mm-hmm. I should have known that it that there's like that is that is a huge that has been a huge pivot and moment of growth in my work with with clients when that has happened. And it has happened often because I'm human and I'm continuing to like do to have to do this work. I know that for myself as well, um, not doing this work alone. Like, so meaning that I am, um, constantly, you know, checking in with other colleagues and like, you know, making sure that I'm continuing to bring my own awareness and education into the work that I'm doing around, especially as it relates to diversity and multicultural awareness. And so I love to hear, Mm -hmm. you mentioned that you have a program, um, 
but I would love to hear more about what it is that you're offering in your services. Oh, okay. Um, so it's, it's a couple of things because my husband and I, we can't say a whole bunch, but probably, um, when this comes out, it'll probably already be out. (laughs) But, um, so my husband and I just started a new business. Um, he's also a school psychologist and he's a licensed marriage and family therapist as well. And so right now we're really, really focused on consulting with people and just really helping people to be more culturally aware um, in their practices or in the the agencies, Um, you know, whether you're a private practice or a bigger agency, we are really just passionate about helping people just be culturally aware and sensitive in how they're doing the work. And so that's one um, area that we're offering stuff to people. Um, On my end, uh, what I've been doing for several years now through um, my private practice work is my monthly newsletters. And so um, for three years, I just did a simple monthly newsletter that comes out once a month and it's about cultural awareness, and it really um, complements my podcast, um, which is Walk a Day in My Culture. That's what both of them are called. And so I just write content. I give people tips on how to effectively work with the Black community, or I just give people um, kind of like an inside look of how it is to be Black to help people really think about these things. Um, And I also now have a additional, should I say a premium subscription? So one of them is free. The other one is paid um, where you get more than one newsletter per month. You get a worksheet to go with it to help you kind of do some things on your own so you can have some autonomy in that area. Um, It also includes like a question and answer pre-recorded session once a month and then quarterly I jump on for just a live kind of discussion slash question and answer based off of um, one of the topics we've discussed. And then um, this is both me and my husband, just the trainings that I do in general um, and offering those to people, you know, either quarterly or once a year, depending on which training it is. Um, That's kind of what I have in the works to kind of offer people. Okay, so I mean, incredible, and so I'll, I'll definitely make sure that, like, it, when I share all of this, that it's at a point when you've already shared this publicly because it sounds like an amazing, an amazing resource. And so it kind of leads me though to um, another question I had of what are ways in which we can be as a field, as a field as a whole, like supporting. Mm-hmm the educators who are out there in the trenches doing this work because the the energy that it takes to be offering like the kind of education that you are is incredibly like it, it can be very taxing right and so it's like how do we yeah. like I think that, you know, um, there's a lot of free resources out there and like that's, you know, of course that makes it easily accessible, but what are some other ways in which we can be as a field, as a whole, supporting those that are out there doing the work of educating our communities? Mm -hmm. Um, There's a bunch of ways. Uh, The first thing that came, came to mind is to first support the educators 
um, and honoring their own cultural wounds, right? And so just kind of reminding educators that this is, a lot of us do this because it's a passion, but we also have to remember what our threshold is um, so that our cultural wounds don't get re-triggered. And so just, you know, reminding educators that are out there, especially if you are really close with someone on a personal basis, just to say, hey, you know, don't forget you have your own wounds that you need to tend to. Um, I know for me, because I'm really, really passionate about my writings and um, my podcast, I don't, with my writings in particular, I don't write about every single cultural tragedy that I know about. Because that is just too much for me um, personally, because, you know, I don't write about every black man I've heard that's, you know, gotten killed by the police or harassed by the police because my husband's a black man. And that just heightens my anxiety when he leaves the door. You know, I might I'll write about the ones that are really out there and in everyone's face. But sometimes I don't do those either. So to encourage us to keep our cultural wounds in check. Um, And then for people that are benefiting from the things that we're teaching, just to encourage you all to continue to do your homework. So it's not a one and done. All right. I went to her training and I paid her for that training or I paid her for this speaking and now I'm done to really pay attention to what you got from it and to keep the homework and the research on your end going um, and to just meditate on what it is you've learned from the educator. And then I think the last thing um, would be to, you know, pay people what they're worth. Um, I think where I heard this, I think her name is April Harper. I hope I'm saying her name right. April Harper. April Harper. Yeah. Yeah. She's an LCS. Yeah. She's an LCSW. She's really, really big on um, Instagram. April Harder. Harder. April Harder. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So. Okay, yes. So she, I heard her on a podcast um, by Annie, Annie Sushler, the yeah. rebel therapist, um, both very, very excellent um, therapists. And on that particular podcast, April mentioned for us as educators to not exploit mm-hmm. ourselves. I'm not quoting her, but that's kind of like a paraphrase of what yeah. she said. And it's really, really true because a lot of times people will want you to kind of come to do a little speaking for like an hour and the way they'll frame it is like, Oh, well, we can't pay you, but this is great exposure for get to know you. Yeah. It's kind of like, no, thank you. Like if you can't pay me for my time and the effort that it takes to not only one get here and to two put together something that is professional and succinct and, that will land and stick with people, then I don't need your exposure. And so for for people to just really be mindful of not minimizing the hour that it takes for somebody to come on and do something and to pay them for it. Because if there was something that you were really, really wanting to do, you would pay for it, you know? And so just to really keep that in mind to you know, pay what people are worth. Um, I, I've done some work before in the past and I've had 
comments, you know, oh, well, I mean, this isn't what we had the budget for, but I mean, I guess we can figure it out. You know, those are microaggressions, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, either you figure it out or I can't come do the contract work that you're asking me to do. Um, (laughs) Like, you know, especially when I'm giving actually a really reasonable rate compared to what other people are charging for what I'm offering. So those type of things and just being mindful of the comments that are being made when you're having someone come on, you know, and you're running into budget issues because, you know, you can easily find budget uh, crunches, not crunches, but a little wiggle room with budgets if it's like a Dan Siegel or someone coming, you know what I mean? Or Brene Brown coming, like it would be very easy for you to figure it out. And I doubt that those comments would be made. <laughs> so even when I had Dr. Joy come to our agency, they just were like, oh, she's so expensive. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, have people seen her resume? Like, she should be yeah. expensive. <laughs> so just those things and keeping those things in mind, that is a, the best way to support us diversity mm-hmm. educators. All right, Narissa. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so grateful for you taking the time. And I would love to hear from you. Where can people find you and your work? Okay. Yes. And thank you also for having me. I really appreciate it because you didn't have to be open to having me on the show. Um, So I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, So people can actually find me two places now with all the things that me and my husband are doing. So people can follow me on Instagram at bloom into your best self. And I always say bloom like a flower. Um, that's also my website. So bloom into your best That's where people get access to all my writings, to my podcast. Um, all of that is there on my website. My podcast is called uh, walk a day in my culture. Um, that's also what my newsletter is called. Like I said, they complement each other. And then for what me and my husband are doing with our new business and consulting and Um, I also forgot to mention that we will eventually be hiring people because we want to, um, we really want to train up clinicians to actually have like real cultural awareness and sensitivity in the work that they do. Um, so that's like another step of ours that we're, we're going and kind of supervising people in that, that realm. But you can find us both on our website, which is uh, culturefirst.org. And so the first is the number. So it's culture one ST, the number one. Um, And that's just, you know, short for um, our business name, which is culture first family uh, therapy and training services. And so that's where you can find both of us. Well, Narissa, I will be sure to include all of this and the links in the show notes. And again, I am so grateful for you taking the time to come on here. I know you've got your little one downstairs. I love her so much. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And just really grateful to be getting a chance to share, to be able to have this conversation with you, with just you and me for, for myself too, but also for all the listeners. Thank you, Narissa, so much. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. I really hope you enjoyed the information that was shared in this episode. Ready to build or grow your modern private practice? 
click the link in the show notes for Modern Therapist Academy, a comprehensive e-course to support you in building and growing your private practice. Thank you for inviting me and my guests into your day. Be sure to subscribe so you can be the first to hear when new episodes launch. Have a beautiful, wonderful rest of your day.